This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. Hope you're doing well and enjoying the last beautiful days of summer. The end of summer always makes me wistful. The backyard becomes extremely quiet as many of the songbirds take off to migrate south for the winter. I miss their cheerful song. But if you're a gardening junkie like I am, You're already planning what to plant for next year and thinking of new ways to make your backyard an even more attractive native oasis for the birds. Exciting news in the world of entomology. Scientists recently discovered an ancient bee trapped in amber, dated to be at least 100 million years old. Now that's old, really old. But the big surprise is that the bee was carrying pollen. Thanks to being trapped in tree resin that then hardened into amber, You can plainly see the yellow pollen clinging to the legs of the bee, indicating it had just visited a flower. This fossilized insect from a tropical jungle in Myanmar is the oldest record of a primitive bee and is the only known amber-encased bee with pollen on it. The bee has been named Discoscapa apicula by scientists and has led to the creation of an entirely new classification of family, genus, and species. Researchers believe this bee signifies an evolutionary shift during the period of the dinosaurs in the mid-Cretaceous period, from carnivorous wasps to pollinating bees. Turn down the volume, please. New studies are showing birds are greatly affected by noise and may even be going deaf due to the sound of ear-splitting machinery like leaf blowers and gasoline-powered lawnmowers. In fact, researchers say both adult and baby birds exposed to persistently loud noise can show symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, similar to those found in humans. Chronic stress syndromes include fluctuating stress hormone levels, hypervigilance, anxiety, and distraction, according to a study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Just a 10 decibel increase in man-made noise can apparently block a bird from hearing 90% of the natural sounds in its environment. Birds greatly rely on their hearing to alert them to the presence of predators, say scientists. Loud noise puts parent birds on alert, and their first response is to protect the nestlings. Parent birds may miss crucial feedings in an attempt to protect their young from perceived danger. Researchers discovered that nestlings raised in noisy areas had smaller bodies, shorter feathers, both of which can greatly reduce a bird's long-term survival rate. 
In addition, scientists also found more eggs failed to hatch in noisy areas, pointing to possible effects on reproductive abilities, according to the National Science Foundation. Now let's talk a little more about monarch butterflies. It's August 26th, and I am already seeing monarchs in our yard, which is very exciting. Now I know we have discussed what to plant to create a monarch migration way station in a previous show, but I wanted to mention a few other plants you can add to your yard to further entice the monarchs. It's really not enough to plant just native plants for nectaring. If you want migrating monarchs to linger, consider planting eastern red cedar trees. Stands of eastern red cedar are considered to be crucial overnight roosting sites for migrating monarchs. Monarchs are drawn to the broad evergreen leaves of the eastern red cedar, which protect them from damaging rains and wind. Juniperus virginiana, or eastern red cedar, is a drought-tolerant conifer that can handle poor dry soils to wet swampy land. This species is also tolerant of windy conditions and was used widely as a windbreak during the Dust Bowl era of the 1930s. Hardy in zones 2 to 9, this evergreen is native to the eastern half of the United States. Plant your stand of eastern red cedars close to your monarch migration way station. An excellent native shrub for migrating monarchs in the fall is the groundsel tree, or Baccarus halmifolia. Monarchs nectar heavily on this shrub, which grows in zones 5 to 9 and is a member of the aster family. Their trunks also weep sap that other butterflies like the red admiral, morning cloak, eastern comma, and question mark like to feed on. The groundsel tree, or sea myrtle, is seen along seaside habitats in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, although it can survive as far north as Nova Scotia. Growing an average of 6 to 12 feet in height, its fragrant white flowers bloom in August, September, and October. This small, salt-tolerant tree prefers some shade and will thrive in a sandy loam. While this plant's seeds are enjoyed by many birds, it's important to keep in mind that the leaves and seeds can be poisonous to some animals. Other important nectaring trees and shrubs for the monarch include willow, viburnum, buttonbush, spiria, and clethra, or summer sweet. Helpful plants include helianthus, which is a perennial sunflower, thistle, sage, and boneset. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the great blue heron. The great blue heron is a big bird and can be quite a sight to see when flying overhead. Look, up in the sky. Is that a plane? Is that a pterodactyl? No, it's a great blue heron. The great blue heron is a wading water bird measuring up to four and a half feet tall, which makes it taller than some humans. With its immense six-foot wingspan, long spindly legs, and the eerie grack sound it emits, you may feel like you've traveled back in time to the era of the dinosaurs. In fact, bird scientists have discovered great blue heron fossils dating back 1.8 million years, which places the bird squarely in the Pleistocene period when bird-like dinosaurs roamed the earth. The great blue heron can be found inhabiting freshwater and saltwater lakes, ponds, and wetlands. A large bird needs to digest lots of calories to sustain energy levels. The heron spends 90% of its time hunting for food, 
and is most active in its hunting during early morning and early evening. Their dusky blue and gray plumage blends in perfectly with the reflection of the water and the low light at these times, providing the camouflage needed for safe and uninterrupted hunting activities. Great blue herons can even hunt in the dead of night, thanks to special photoreceptors in their eyes that create the equivalent of night vision goggles worn by humans. The great blue heron stalks its prey by standing in shallow water as still as a statue, convincing fish there is no danger. Then, fast as lightning, the heron will spear its prey with its long, sharp, dagger-like bill and swallow it whole. Great blue herons are experts at catching fish, but are also fond of eating snakes, frogs, crayfish, crabs, shrimp, grasshoppers, and small mammals. During winter, when lakes and ponds are frozen, great blue herons will hunt on land, catching and eating moles and voles along with other terrestrial creatures. Great blue herons are referred to by scientists as partial migrants, meaning they migrate regionally, flying to the southern edge of their breeding range in winter, gravitating toward warmer habitats near the ocean, like estuaries and mudflats. Great blue herons frequently sleep in trees. During mating season, they form rookeries or isolated colonies of nests, numbering anywhere from five nests to 500 nests, in order to hatch and rear their young. These rookeries are usually formed around small ponds or vernal pools. The great blue female typically lays three to five eggs, and both parents will feed the nestlings until the age of 10 weeks, at which point the youngsters permanently leave the nest. A touching ritual is performed by mating pairs of great blue herons and is referred to as the nest relief ceremony. Once a parent bird returns with food for the nestlings, the pair engage in a beautiful dance by spreading their wings and bowing to each other. Then the other parent leaves the nest to take a turn searching for food. The great blue heron is a fastidious bird and spends a great deal of time preening, which is necessary to keep its enormous wings clean and in good flight condition. The great blue has a patch of powder down or fine particles of keratin dust on its breast, and it removes that powder with its foot in order to distribute it evenly through its feathers. This protects plumage from contamination and provides waterproofing. A great blue heron typically lives to the age of 15. The oldest recorded great blue heron lived to be 24 years old. Great blue herons are at the top of the food chain and don't have many predators to worry about, except for humans. Their stiletto-like bill, strong kicking legs, and sharp toes make them a formidable challenge when confronted. Yet despite their immense strength, they are shy and reclusive birds and prefer to be left alone. As conventional wisdom would say, it's probably best to let dinosaurs do whatever they want. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Now let's talk about how to protect birds from windows. The first snap of cold weather is the signal for birds to start their southern migration to warmer climates for the winter. But it is a perilous journey. Up to one billion birds die from flying into windows in the United States each year, and migrating birds are the most common victims, according to the American Bird Conservancy. The major reason? Birds can't see glass. A bird has eyes on the sides of its head. That makes for great precision flying in between trees and branches, but it gives them really lousy depth perception. 
Glass reflects the image of trees and sky in a person's backyard, fooling the bird into believing they are flying toward open space. The worst offender? A giant picture window. To make matters worse, some of the newer brands of windows and sliding glass doors are highly reflective, making them very efficient killers. The good news? There is a great deal a homeowner can do to reduce the number of bird collisions on one's property. The number one solution is keeping your bird feeder away from windows. At least 50 feet would be ideal. If you have a bird feeder, you're going to be drawing a lot of birds to your yard, so make sure you have windows with screens on the outside so birds will bounce. Or use bird tape to break up the reflection on the glass. Place the tape on the outside of the window. If you place it on the inside, the birds won't see it. A popular solution with homeowners is a weatherproof solar shade, which is operated by a remote. The solar shade is made of a synthetic material that is attached to the outside of the window and is operated with a motor. You just hit the remote to lower the shade and it blocks the sun and keeps your room cool. But it also keeps the birds away from the window. You can apply sheets of transparent film to reduce the sun's reflection, install shutters or awnings, or use decals. However, decals are only effective in large numbers, and they must be placed on the outside of the glass a little less than two inches apart. Otherwise, they will not be effective, because believe it or not, songbirds can turn sideways and fly through two inches of space. Should the worst happen, place the bird in a small cardboard box. You may need to punch some small air holes in the box for adequate ventilation. Put the bird on a soft towel and bring the bird indoors. A garage, porch, or basement will not be warm enough because when a bird is injured, it loses its ability to thermoregulate. A bird's core body temperature is 105 degrees. So imagine an injured bird trying to keep itself warm in 30-degree weather outdoors. In fact, a songbird or raptor with a window strike injury during the fall or winter can succumb to hypothermia in a matter of minutes. An indoor temperature of 65 degrees will keep the bird alive while you contact help. Bringing the bird indoors will also protect it from predators like cats. Call your local wildlife rehabilitator for further instructions. You can also contact animalhelpnow.org for help, and they will help you find the closest wildlife rehabilitator in your area. The conventional wisdom for years had been to wait 45 minutes, and if the bird appears to have revived, to release it back into the wild. However, new research is showing window strike birds immediately allowed back outside often do not survive. A lot of people think, oh good, it flew away. But many of those birds die later in the woods from internal bleeding or brain hemorrhaging. Some very effective bird deterrent products are now available in the United States and are highly recommended by the American Bird Conservancy. These include ABC bird tape, Acopian bird savers curtains, Kaleidoscape window film, feather-friendly adhesive dots, Solix bird safety film, and window alert UV reflecting safety squares. Commercial businesses can significantly reduce collisions with the Ivanki Industries Acrylite Soundstop Bird Guard, which is an acrylic plexiglass embedded with polyamide threads, or Guardian Glass SW68 1/8 inch dark line pattern glass, as well as Walker Glass Avi Protect bird-friendly glass patterns. If each of us made safety modifications to just one window, imagine the collective impact we could have in keeping birds safe. Now let's talk a moment about how forensic science is saving wildlife. Wildlife trafficking is big business. 
According to multiple government investigations, poachers and smugglers earn $20 billion a year illegally capturing and transporting wildlife or wildlife body parts over the borders into foreign nations. Nearly every day, law enforcement officers at Miami International Airport seize and confiscate live birds, reptiles, and mammals from criminals attempting to smuggle animals into and out of the United States illegally for big profits. Wildlife body parts like the powder of rhino horns, which purportedly enhances male virility, or tiger's whiskers, which supposedly prevent toothaches, also offer a big cash payout to people willing to sneak these items over the border. The tragic irony is that 80% of all live smuggled animals die in transit. Even more disturbing are recent findings by global wildlife law enforcement that insurgent groups throughout Africa and the Middle East, including Al-Qaeda, are now turning to wildlife trafficking as a way to make big money, which is then used to buy weapons. This is where wildlife forensics enters the picture. Wildlife forensics is the application of science during a criminal investigation regarding wildlife cruelty. The aim of forensics is to produce compelling evidence that links the animal in question with the suspect in the crime scene, thereby leading to a conviction and prison time. A wildlife forensic scientist is faced with quite a challenge. While a human forensic scientist must be knowledgeable about the male and female human body, the wildlife forensic scientist must know or have access to knowledge about the intricacies of thousands of species of animals. Imagine law enforcement bringing a tiny piece of bird bone to a forensic specialist and asking for identification. Thanks to improved, state-of-the-art DNA analysis, identification can now be made quickly on thousands of species, speeding the prosecution of court cases. In the year 1900, the United States federal government took the first step ever to regulate ownership of wild animals by forming the Lacey Act. There had been a great deal of transport of live game between states during that era, and non-Indigenous animals were destroying valuable ecosystems and trampling farmers' crops. However, hunting still went largely unregulated, resulting in the mass slaughter of wildlife. Hunters were shooting migrating hawks by the thousands as target practice every fall at Hawk Mountain in Pennsylvania. Waterbird populations in the Florida Everglades were decimated for their beautiful feathers to adorn ladies' hats. And passenger pigeons were shot and killed by the millions, resulting in their extinction in 1914. And then the Endangered Species Act was passed in 1966. This was the first act formed to truly protect wildlife and had the teeth of enforcement. In 1969, the first list of endangered species was compiled by the Department of the Interior and released to the public. Today, the U.S. government also issues a threatened list as well as a list of species of special concern. In 1972, the Marine Mammal Protection Act was passed, safeguarding whales, seals, walruses, and manatees. Another big push towards stronger enforcement occurred in 1975 with the formation of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. CITES maintains protection of 35,000 wild species all over the world. Over 175 countries, including the United States, are signed on to cooperate with CITES in its efforts to carefully monitor and prevent illegal poaching and smuggling. But the most promising development for wildlife protection occurred in 1989 when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Forensics Laboratory was opened in Ashland, Oregon. It is the only lab in the world completely dedicated to investigating crimes against wildlife. 
The Ashland Lab takes on 800 to 1,000 high-profile cases every year and has been instrumental in reducing the number of pangolins being poached in Southeast Asia. Thanks to the lab's success in getting convictions, over 150 new wildlife forensic crime operations have opened in various countries around the globe in recent years, all of whom are modeling their practices on the Ashland Protocols. Thanks to an anonymous phone tip and efforts by forensic experts, a Pennsylvania man just pleaded guilty to charges involving the poaching and smuggling of thousands of rare turtles from New Jersey marshes, which were sold to underground animal dealers in Canada. He is now facing prison time along with owing over $500,000 in fines. This case has had an astonishing chilling effect on some major black market operations, and law enforcement officials are crediting several new forensic technologies, along with enhanced DNA analysis, as instrumental in the swift apprehension and conviction of wildlife criminals. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And now for more of my personal story. I felt a little sheepish and embarrassed, but I made myself drive over to the Turtle Rescue Center. I wanted to apologize to the director in person. After all, she had arranged for my volunteer training. It takes a lot of time and effort to get new volunteers in an organization up to speed, and it takes even more time and energy to find a replacement when a volunteer can no longer provide help. As I drove, I wondered, what was the next step for me? I had dragged my husband all the way down to Key West, thinking I was meant to rehabilitate sea turtles. I had uprooted our lives. What now? The director was very kind and understanding. She explained that working with large sea turtles wasn't for everyone. Then she told me some volunteers wore back supports and hernia belts when going out on ocean rescues to protect themselves from injury. Getting a large sea turtle weighing hundreds of pounds into a boat was quite a challenge and often took several people to accomplish. I had just thanked her and was back outside heading to my car in the parking lot when I heard her calling my name. I turned around to see her at the front entrance standing next to a man holding a bulky towel. As I drew nearer, she said, I have a favor to ask you. Would you mind dropping off this injured bird at the Wild Bird Rescue Center on your way back to Key West? I nodded yes, of course. I had no idea there was a Wild Bird Rescue Center anywhere in the Florida Keys. The man, who turned out to be a fisherman, handed me the large damp towel with a bird's head peeking out of it. He had just come in on his fishing boat from the dry Tortugas, where he had found the bird floating in the water, unable to fly. She gave me the directions, and I headed off with the bird in the towel, sitting quietly next to me in the front passenger seat. We both turned our heads at the same time and looked at each other. It was love at first sight. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.